Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And you will have noticed already a brief quotation from Martin Luther on the screen behind me. And let me read that for you as we commence our study of God's Word today. Luther proclaimed centuries ago, trying to be justified by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse. And so you want to be right in the sight of God. You want God to accept you. You, you want to avoid God's judgment on the appointed judgment day. You, you, you want to be justified. Well, trying to be justified by the law, that is, by your own effort in keeping and observing God's law, is like counting money out of an empty purse. It is an exercise in futility. It is like eating and drinking from an empty dish and cup. You can't eat what isn't there, nor can you drink what is not there. It is like looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty. It is like laying a burden, a weight on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse. It is, that is, trying to be justified by the law. Is like trying to spend a hundred gold pieces and not having a pittance. And so these are, I mean, Luther is conjuring up mental images here, very powerful mental images. These are all exercises in futility. It is absolutely pointless to try to count money where there is none, to eat food where there is none, to drink water or whatever where there is nothing. Uh, you cannot do something with nothing. That's Luther's point. So too, when it comes to our quest for salvation. So too, when it comes to our quest to be accepted, to be received, to be welcomed by God. Because let's face it, there is a problem. That's the starting point. We need to be clear on it. There is a problem. There is a problem between God and us. Our natural condition before God's sight is one of enmity and hostility. Huge distance. Well, how am I to be reconciled to God? How am I to find favor in God's sight? How am I to avoid judgment on that day that is coming? How am I to get out from under the wrath of God and be accepted by God? That is, be justified, declared just in his sight. Well, if I think for one moment that the answer to those questions resides in me, if I really believe for one moment that the answer to those questions is found in my observance of the law, that God has put a standard out there, he has made his law known, and all I have to do is my best to keep it and hope my good outweighs my bad. If that is my thinking, if I'm trying to be justified by my observance of the law, I am engaging in an exercise in futility. I am trying to accomplish something that is absolutely impossible. And it is impossible. Why? It is impossible not only because of our sins, our sins of omission, things we do, 
or, or neglect to do, and sins of commission, things we do, transgressions of God's law. And so it's impossible to be justified by God's law, not only because of our many sins, but it is impossible to be justified by God's law because even when it comes to those things that appear good and seem right, our motive for doing them is always wrong. And that makes those actions unacceptable in the sight of a holy God. One preacher put it this way, very pointedly, behind every motive lurks the desire to play God. Behind every motive, behind every action, lurks the desire to play God. Our sinful condition, he adds, is the commitment to be our own God. That is our condition. It's the starting point. We must grasp it. Our starting point as a human being born in this fallen world is this commitment to be our own God. I will be God to me. I will be the final authority in my life. I will decide what is right and wrong for me. I will decide what is good and bad for me. I will decide what is true and false for me. And my desires will express my sovereignty. My desires will express my autonomy. And though I don't dare admit it, my desires will express my deity. That is how we function. That is the starting point of every action. There is this motive that lurks behind it whereby all that we do as fallen creatures is rendered and made unacceptable in the sight of God. Oh, my friend, how are you going to be justified in the sight of God when you can't do anything that is acceptable in the sight of God? We've got a problem. It is an exercise in futility. Trying to be justified, says Luther, by the law is like counting money out of an empty purse eating and drinking from an empty dish and cup, looking for strength and riches where there is nothing but weakness and poverty, laying a burden on someone who is already oppressed to the point of collapse, trying to spend a hundred gold pieces and not having a pittance. And so what is the solution? Our quest to be justified in the sight of God, what is the solution? I pray you already know the solution. It is that we stop looking at ourselves and we actually look to someone else. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Lord Jesus, what do we discover? We discover someone who not only can, but has obeyed the law. He has fulfilled all righteousness and he has pleased God with every word he spoke, every thought he had, every deed he performed and committed, his life a pleasing aroma and sacrifice to God from beginning to end. And I look away from myself, and I look to the Lord Jesus, and I realize that to be justified does not rest in me. It is not based on my effort. No, to be justified is to believe in Christ. And by faith, it is to become one with him, one with him, whereby now in God's sight, a great 
transaction takes place. My sin is laid on him, and he has made a curse for me upon Calvary's cross. And now his righteousness is laid on me, whereby I am now just, that is, justified in the sight of God. There's a tiny, almost forgotten letter in the New Testament. It's Paul's epistle to Philemon. Do you remember it? Maybe I should preach on it someday. I could probably stretch it into 10 sermons if I tried really hard. There you have that little epistle to Philemon. And there's a great statement. I think it's verse 17, verse 18. As he's encouraging Philemon to receive Onesimus, a servant, a slave, who had fled from Philemon. And in the meantime, Onesimus has been converted. And so Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon, a fellow believer. And he's encouraging Philemon to receive Onesimus in the Lord. And he says to him that if he owes you anything, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. That's beautiful, isn't it? If he owes you anything, charge it to my account. That is the doctrine of justification. It rests on that great premise, imputation, whereby through faith we become one with the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus has declared Stephen, Christian, Tom, charge it to my account. The life they've lived, the sins they've committed, their transgressions and their iniquity, they are now mine. And I have become a curse. I have borne the wrath of God for them there upon Calvary's cross. And guess what? Now my righteousness is theirs. The great doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In his epistle to the Galatians, what's Paul doing? He's defending this doctrine. And he's defending this doctrine against whom? Those who are convinced, or perhaps at least, at the very least, on the road to be, being convinced that the doctrine of justification and final acceptance in God's sight isn't by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but is actually contingent upon our observance of the law. And so bring up the next slide, Teresa, and you'll see where we're at in this letter. We've entered into this third section, the gospel defended. Chapter 3, verse 1, it's a big one. It's a big one, and it's confusing in places. Chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 12. And here Paul is defending this gospel. He's defending himself against that charge. Paul, you've corrupted the pure gospel that the Lord Jesus preached and that the Lord Jesus gave to the other apostles. You received the gospel from them, but you've distorted it and twisted it. Well, Paul is defending his gospel, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not only is he defending his doctrine, but he's going on the offensive. And he is demonstrating the absolute absurdity of the teaching of these opponents in the churches of Galatia. Those who say that the observance of the Old Testament law is still a requirement to obtain a right standing in the sight of God. And in this section, he brings forth four arguments from experience. You were here last Sunday. We've been there. We've done that. Chapter 3, the first five verses. The second argument from Scripture. It is where we're arriving today. Verse 6 of chapter 3 through to verse 7 of chapter 4. A third argument, back to experience. A fourth argument, 
Again, back to Scripture. And then a final appeal in the first 12 verses of chapter 5. So do you see where we are in his defense and in his counterattack against these opponents? Next slide, Teresa, because we're in a lengthy section now, chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 7, in which he's going to make this key argument from Scripture. We're going to discover that Abraham, the great patriarch, is never far from the mind of the Apostle Paul. Abraham is pivotal to the argument that Paul is going to make in this section. He is the undercurrent in each and every verse. And we're going to break it into three parts to get our minds around this tremendous argument. The blessing of Abraham, the priority of Abraham, and the offspring of Abraham. That if we understand each of these three, what do we mean by the blessing of Abraham? What do we mean by the priority of Abraham? What do we mean by the offspring of Abraham? If we can get our minds around these three, we will have this section in its entirety fully grasped and understood. And we will see where it fits in this overall argument as Paul takes on these opponents in the churches of Galatia. No more slides for you, Teresa. You can take that away. You see now where we're at. And so follow along as I begin reading in Galatians chapter 3, the 6th verse through to the 14th verse. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so what is it? What do we have here? We have an argument from Scripture. How many Scriptures? Seven. Paul makes seven references to the Old Testament Scriptures. There are six direct citations. And then he ends with one not-so-subtle illusion. And so this, these seven texts form the content of his central argument, again, as he goes on the offensive and seeks to silence his critics in the churches of Galatia. He dissects their argument. He dismantles their argument, 
and he basically destroys and obliterates their argument. Now I want to walk you through it. It isn't the easiest stroll in the park, that's for sure. So we're going to enter into a little bit of a role play, all right? This is the closest you're ever going to come on my watch to drama at Grace Community Church. But we're going to enter into a little bit of a role play, all right? I'm the Apostle Paul just because here I am. I've got the text, the pulpits here. We're just going to assume you are representative of the churches of Galatia, all right? So I'm addressing you. Let's imagine there's a get-together between Paul and these churches, and here we are. And Paul says, this is, this, the confusion is unbelievable. Uh, what, what you have heard and what you have been taught is, is, is lamentable. Uh, the fact that you are, you are now abandoning so quickly uh, what you heard, the gospel, doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and I understand the appeal. I understand that, that, that there seems to be some higher spirituality and greater religiosity associated with the Old Testament law, but you're being duped, you're being deceived, or in Pauline language, you're being bewitched. And so let's go somewhere, let's go somewhere that we can all agree on. The Scriptures, all right? Let's open up the Old Testament, and let's take seven just peeks at the Old Testament Scriptures, and just draw a conclusion from each one. Okay, I haven't lost anybody yet, right? Seven references from the Old Testament, and I'm just going to make one point from each one. And this completely dismantles everything you have been hearing from those false teachers who have excluded they're outside the building right now, okay? So here we go, seven texts. So let's take the Old Testament, basically is what he's saying, and let's turn firstly to Genesis, the book of beginnings, Chapter 15, verse 6. So important. You don't need to turn there. Why? Because he quotes it in verse 6. He quotes it. Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Everybody's there, right? What is the inference, the conclusion? My point. Verse 7. Know then. Here's the conclusion that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Let me put it to you in even simpler terms, I pray. And so I'm speaking to you as the churches of Galatia. Here's the question. We've just read Genesis 15, 6. How did Abraham obtain a right standing in the sight of God? You don't need to stare at me blankly. You now know the answer. It's right there in black and white. How did Abraham the great patriarch, the man of man's, how did he obtain a right standing in the sight of God? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That means God treated Abraham as though he was righteous, even though he wasn't. He treated him as though he was righteous on account of his faith. Abraham was what? He was a believer. Guess what? The conclusion at the start of verse 7, those who believe like Abraham are the true sons of Abraham. Now, here's the shocker, and some of you, remember we're role-playing, might run out of the building screaming when you hear what I'm about to say. It has nothing. That is sonship. Being a son of Abraham 
has absolutely nothing to do with physical descent. I don't care that you're a Jew. That is what Paul is saying. Being a son of Abraham has nothing to do with ethnicity. You've been duped. You've been deceived. You've been bewitched. The Jews think they're sons of Abraham because of their ethnicity. But what did Christ himself say in John 8, 39? If, if, and it's a huge if, if, he's speaking to the Jews, you were the children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. You don't do what Abraham did. Guess what? You aren't the children of Abraham. That's his conclusion. Do you now see, brethren, that the true sons of Abraham are believers. They could be a Jew. They could be a Gentile. They could be a Kenyan. They could be an Australian. They could be an American. They could be a Venezuelan. It doesn't matter. Ethnicity is completely of no consequence at all. Let's just close the book on this once and for all. Because it is the prevailing mindset still among the Jews in the churches of Galatia that there is something special about their race. Something simply about being a physical descendant of Abraham somehow entails some sort of special blessing. And Paul's point is this. You've, completely, you've missed the boat entirely. You have completely missed it. No, the true sons of Abraham are believers. All right? That's the first text. He said, you still got your Bibles open. Let's turn to a second text, Genesis 12, 3. You don't need to turn there. Why not? Because he quotes it right at the end of verse 8. In you is the promise, the promise that God gave to Abraham when he called him while he was yet Abram, right? And here's the promise he gave to him right at the end of verse 8. In you shall all the nations be blessed. What is the point? Verse 9, notice the language. So then, hence, thus, therefore, so then, here's my point, the conclusion. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so staying with the role play, what did God promise Abraham? You can almost imagine Paul asking Churches at Galatia, this question, what did God, what exactly did God promise Abraham? Well, let's turn to Genesis 12, 3. In you shall all the nations be blessed. In you shall all the nations be blessed. And so understand, firstly, that Abraham's faith, belief in God, wasn't some sort of abstract belief God exists. That wasn't it. No, Abraham's belief uh, had a very real object. His belief, his faith was fixed on a promise. And the promise was very specific. In you, all the nations, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, his belief was in God's promise that a descendant, a descendant would arrive in the line of his son Isaac to bless all nations. Do you not remember what Christ said? John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. 
The Lord Jesus speaking to the Jews. Your father Abraham, physical father, rejoiced that he would see my day. He understood the promise. He saw it and he was glad. With Christ's coming, the promise is fulfilled. Do you now see that this was always God's plan? That's the second text. All right, let's leave the book of Genesis. Let's skip over to the book of Deuteronomy. And we have a citation in the 10th verse. Picks it up more or less in the middle of the verse from Deuteronomy 28. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed, forsaken by God, absolutely rejected by God. Cursed everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law and do them. What is the conclusion? The point? He gives us the point at the start of the verse, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And so his question to them is this, what's the consequence? Let's go to Deuteronomy 28 and read it. What's the consequence for failing to observe everything written in the law? Everything, every jot, every tittle. What is the consequence? Here's the consequence. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Well, do you observe everything that's written in the book of the law? Do you? Do you observe absolutely everything written in the book of the law? No. So why do you look to it as a means of salvation? Why would you actually think that your salvation is contingent upon you doing something that you know you do not do and cannot do? Oh, the law can condemn you but it can't justify you. It can wound you, but it can't heal you. Do you now see that all, all who insist upon keeping the law as a means of salvation are under a curse? Fourth scripture. He leaves the Torah behind and he turns to the prophets, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And he quotes Habakkuk in verse 11 of our text in Galatians 3, right at the end of verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. What's his point? He gave us our, his point earlier in the 11th verse. It is evident that no one is justified by God before God by the law. It's evident. It's obvious. Here we are. We've got the scriptures open. We're in the book of Habakkuk. What I've shown you already should be sufficient to, to seal this argument. But let's go to Habakkuk now and hear what he has to say. The righteous shall live by faith. So this idea that you can go back and observe the law in order to obtain a right standing in the sight of God is unthinkable because it actually contradicts the scriptures itself. So we can hear the question Paul might put to the churches of Galatia. How can a person, now tell me, be honest. How can a person stand before God on the judgment day? How? How can a person avoid the judgment that is coming? The righteous shall live by faith. There's the only answer. A right standing with God cannot be through the law. Because Scripture clearly teaches that it has always been through faith. Do you now see 
that faith justifies because it unites us to Christ, who is our righteousness. Scripture number five goes back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5. And he quotes it right there, middle of verse 12. The one who does them, the law, all that is written in the law, the one who does them shall live by them. What's his point, his conclusion? First half of verse 12, the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. So Paul, again, speaking to these Galatians, puts the question to them. Try to follow this. Why did God, and this perhaps is cause, a cause, of much of the confusion, much of what is perplexing these people in the churches of Galatia. Here's the question. Why did God command the Jews to follow the law if it couldn't save them? Why bother? Why did he give them the Mosaic Covenant? Again, here's the question. Why did God command the Jews to follow the law if it couldn't save them? The law required perfect obedience. It did. But never forget that the law also provided forgiveness through what? The sacrificial system. It wasn't the sacrifices themselves that wiped away people's guilt. But those sacrifices pointed to whom? The Lord Jesus. Those sacrifices prepared for whom? The great final atonement that would be accomplished by the Lord Jesus himself. And those Jews who participated, who lived under the law, and sought to, by the Spirit's leading, obey the law, and when they sinned and they failed and they transgressed, would bring the required sacrifice, and all the while they were living by faith, faith in this promise that there was a Savior, a Redeemer coming, and all of this elaborate ritual pointed to Him. Those Jews who performed the religion like that, by faith, they experienced what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. But what, what happened? With the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment of all that was foreshadowed in that sacrificial system. With the coming of Christ, the sacrificial system becomes obsolete. It's gone. Never to be resurrected. It's gone. What's Paul's point? Well, those who now place themselves under the law must keep the law perfectly without any hope of forgiveness because forgiveness is no longer extended through the sacrificial system because the sacrificial system no longer exists. Those who now go back and live under the law are now living under a covenant that no longer makes any provision for sinners. It requires perfect obedience and you must obey it perfectly. You must. Because you are now under a system in which there is no longer any forgiveness grace extended to you because that forgiveness has been fully accomplished now with the coming of the Lord Jesus. By rejecting the Lord Jesus, you're going back under that old system and there is no grace for you. So if you can't keep the law perfectly and, and if God yet commanded you to keep the law and that provision of forgiveness is now gone, and if the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one in whom you can find forgiveness of sins, 
why would you be so irrational as to go back and place yourself under that system? That makes no sense at all. Paul appeals to a sixth text. Deuteronomy 21, 23. And we find it there in verse 13, right at the end of the verse. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What's his point? He tells us at the beginning of the same verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so what is what is the consequence of breaking God's law? The consequence for breaking God's law is a curse. All right, my friends. We've established the fact that you must keep the law perfectly, but you can't keep the law perfectly. We've established the fact that the law no longer makes any provision for forgiveness. And we've clearly established the fact that you are cursed in the sight of God. Here's my question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Praise God. It's not about what you're going to do. It is about what God has done. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's our text. It's right out of Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Hanging was, not, was never a way in which a criminal was executed in the Old Testament. Hanging was something they did subsequently to the body of a criminal who was executed. And why did they hang the body of an individual, perhaps a murderer, somebody who's committed an atrocity, a serious sin? Why would they hang that body, suspend it from a tree? It was symbolic. Symbolic of what? That we deem this individual unworthy to even as a dead man have his feet touching the earth. He is cursed in the sight of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he died, he was lifted up. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he was lifted up upon the cross, his feet not even touching the earth, symbolically, he became what? He became that curse. He became forsaken of God, bearing the curse on our behalf. God publicly displaying him as a propitiation in his blood. Well, you could hear the Apostle Paul pleading with these with these want to say believers. He's, the, the verdict is still out. These confused individuals. Do you now see? Do you now see that Christ alone is your only hope of salvation? There's a seventh scripture. No citation, but a very strong allusion to Isaiah 44 verse 3. And this is really the summation of his entire argument going back to the sixth verse. He brings it to a conclusion, a summation in the 14th verse, making this allusion to Isaiah 44, verse 3, and he states in verse 14, so that, here the entire end of the matter, so that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, all that was promised Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Here it is, in my words, ad-libbing, just a touch, Paul speaking 
to the churches of Galatia. God made a promise to Abraham. You know it. I know it. That promise has now become a reality in Christ Jesus. The blessing of Abraham, therefore, belongs to all who believe in Christ Jesus. Therefore, my gospel is rock solid. Justification is clearly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is also now clearly evident that your insistence that must, people must observe the law to enjoy a right standing with God makes absolutely no sense. And that is the conclusion of his second argument, an argument from Scripture. Look back with me. I want to speak pastorally now. We've been speaking almost polemically, haven't we? As Paul engages these people and seeks to be used of the Spirit of God and reasoning with them and bringing them back to the, straight, to the straight and narrow. I want to speak pastorally now for a few moments as we conclude. You look back at the 13th verse. This is, a, this is a precious statement, and I pray it's not lost on anyone today. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That verse, that statement has occupied much of my attention this past week, and it has sent me back each morning in my devotions to, to a well-known hymn. Here are a couple of stanzas from it, and, and I pray the Spirit of God makes these words alive to us. O Christ, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed, now there's no load for me. He goes on and he says, death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me, that bitter cup. Love drank it up, left but the love for me. He became a curse so that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. Four pastoral implications, briefly, as we conclude our time of worship this morning. In light of verse 13, let me speak to unbelievers just for a moment. In light of the 13th verse, just forgetting everything else is around it, just narrow in on the 13th verse. In light of that truth, oh, how glaringly obvious it becomes that we must seek our salvation in Christ alone. He became a curse for us. If I do not believe in the Lord Jesus, if I am not one with Him, what does that mean? I still bear that curse. I am cursed of God. It is a curse I carry in this life right now. I experience it internally. I experience it in a darkened, confused mind. 
I experience it in a hardened and dis- hard and distorted affections. I experience it in an asla- enslaved will. It's a curse I experience right now in this life externally. I am in bondage to the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. Not only that, I live under calamities and losses and all sorts of struggles and afflictions that actually bear no sense at all and do not work for my good, but it's all against me. And in actual fact, I am at enmity with God, at enmity with this world, his creatures, at enmity with everything. This is a curse I currently live with. Oh, but it's worse than that. If I'm under his curse, then what does that mean when, 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 when my days draw to a close? When finally I close my eyes on my deathbed, if I should die in such, in such, a, in such a peaceful way, what will it mean? It will mean death itself. The dissolution of the connection between soul and body and the interment of my body in the grave. What is worse than that? If I die under this curse, what will it mean for all eternity? It will mean that there will be a resurrection, yes. There will be a reunification of my body and soul, but it will not be for life and for salvation. It will not be for glory, but it will be for the full apprehension of the wrath of an offended God in both my body and soul for all eternity. You're worried about North Korea launching a nuclear weapon at Guam? You're an unbeliever, friend. You got bigger problems. You got much bigger problems. You worried about contracting cancer? My friend, you've got much. Oh, cancer is a drop in the bucket. The ocean compared to your predicament. You think you got problems in life? Undoubtedly you do. And I don't doubt that in the Lord Jesus, some of those problems might be solved. Some of them might unravel. Some of them might be with you for the rest of your life, but he'll give you the perseverance to live through them and glorify him in them. I'm not offering you a solution to your problems. I'm offering you salvation from eternal damnation. You are under a curse if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus. You are under God's wrath. You are the object of his righteous indignation. Oh, but Christ has become a curse. Be reasonable, my friend. For the first time in your life, start to be reasonable and come to your senses and understand that there is salvation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was forsaken, that you might be received. He was punished that you might be welcomed. He bore the curse that you might know nothing but favor and grace and loving kindness in a heavenly Father. Well, my friend, there is none of that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you must come to a saving knowledge of Christ, a full reckoning of who and what you are precisely in the sight of God, and an understanding that the Lord Jesus, a great mediator, stands between you and most certain condemnation, and that God will receive you kindly and graciously and with open arms in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there's a second pastoral implication here for believers. What I've just said, we need to preach that to ourselves every day. Never forget it, friend. Never forget it. So many of our problems and issues and struggles are directly related to what? 
that in the 24-7 of life, we lose sight of the gospel. And when we fail to preach this great reality that Christ has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, if you fail to live in the light of that daily reality, you know who will reemerge quicker than you will realize? Self and the love of self. And what will happen? You'll start to take offense at every little wrong. You'll start to react with anger and bitterness when things don't go your way. You'll start to compare yourself with others to prop up your fragile ego and on and on and on it goes. Many of the problems that plague us daily directly related to the fact that we have lost sight or we lose sight, we do not reflect upon, we do not take to heart this great truth. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The third pastoral implication, we must cling to the cross every day. Cling to the cross, the truth of what's Paul saying in this verse, each and every day. A sight of our sin is humbling. It is, it should be, we make no apology for that. A sight of our sin is humbling. It can also be paralyzing. But when we look to Christ's infinite merit, our knowledge of our sin doesn't cripple us because we know that in Christ, God takes delight in a broken heart. Oh, he delights in it. He delights in the poor in spirit. He delights in the contrite and the brokenhearted who come to him confessing their sins, no matter the gravity of their sins, but confessing their sins, repenting of their sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just fourthly, very quickly, in the light of the text, not just verse 13, verse 14, the entire text, we must remind ourselves daily of what it means to be son of Abraham. You ever think of yourself like that? Men and women, a son of Abraham. Why sonship? Because it speaks of heirship. Heirship. You're an heir. You're an heir of Abraham. You are a son of Abraham. So what? What does that say to the businessman here in the 21st century? What does that say to the housewife? What does that say to the student? What does that say to the young person, the senior? What does that say to the academic? What does that say to the carpenter? What does that say to those in every different walk and sphere of life at different points in their life's journey? So what? I'm a son of Abraham. Look at the 14th verse. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through life. It's the Holy Spirit and he, through faith. And he is the spirit of life. It is the fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus proclaimed in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You are a son of Abraham and the heir of all that was promised to Abraham and the heir of the greatest promise of all, God himself pledging himself to you. I will be your God, and you will be my people.
oh, to remind ourselves of that daily and live in the reality of this blessed hope, the promise of eternal life. Our Father, we pray that these truths would find a place in, in our hearts today, capturing our minds and our affections. We pray that the Lord Jesus would more than just find a place in our hearts today, but would dwell in us by the Holy Spirit so that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. We pray these things for your glory, for the edification of your people, and in Christ's matchless name, amen.